Welcome to the July 23rd, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will review a study identifying cyclin-dependent kinase 6, or CDK6, as a therapeutic target of NUP98-driven acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. Learn more about the largest clinical dataset on cold agglutinin disease and examine the effects of COVID-19 on coagulation parameters, as well as bleeding and thrombosis in hospitalized patients. Let's first review the study entitled, CDK6 is an essential direct target of NUP98 fusion proteins in acute myeloid leukemia from Austrian investigators Johannes Schmelerl from the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna, Florian Griebian from the Medical University of Vienna, and their colleagues. The study's key findings are that NUP98 fusion proteins directly regulate leukemia-associated gene expression programs in AML, and that CDK6 expression is under direct transcriptional control of NUP98 fusions and is particularly sensitive to CDK6 inhibition. As Martin Carroll from the University of Pennsylvania points out in his accompanying commentary, AML pathobiology is complicated due to its molecular heterogeneity. Molecular profiling has begun to clarify the necessary and sufficient events required for development of human AML, which may also afford opportunities for targeted therapy, while inhibitors of FLT3, IDH1, and IDH2 have improved the care of selected patients the challenge is finding druggable targets in less common molecular subtypes of AML. Schmelerl and colleagues surmise that AML characterized by different NUP98 fusion proteins deregulate a common set of transcriptional targets that might be exploitable for therapy. To explore this hypothesis, they generated murine models of three distinct NUP98 fusion leukemias driven by doxycycline-inducible promoters. Then they performed both transcriptional profiling and chromatin immunoprecipitation, or CHIP, to identify targets of NUP98 fusions and compared data from the three different models to refine the gene list. Not unexpectedly, gene expression analysis alone generated a list of hundreds of candidate target genes. However, after sorting for genes that are directly regulated by NUP98 JARD1A binding to promoter regions as defined by CHIP-seq, the authors identified 12 candidate genes as common direct transcriptional targets of NUP98 fusion proteins. This included genes in the HOXA cluster and MICE1, as well as CDK6, which is highly overexpressed in different AML subtypes and is a critical target in MLL fusion-expressing AML. The researchers next investigated whether CDK6 expression is required for development and maintenance of NUP98 fusion-driven AML. NUP98 JARD1A-driven leukemia cells were transduced with lentiviral factors enabling doxycycline-inducible expression of CDK6-targeting shRNAs. shRNA-mediated downregulation of CDK6 caused a marked proliferative disadvantage of NUP98 JARD1A-driven cells compared to a control shRNA. This was associated with induction of G0G1 arrest in leukemic cells. These data support the pivotal role of CDK6 in NUP98 fusion-driven leukemia. 
The authors also evaluated whether inhibition of CDK6 may be an effective strategy in this subtype of AML. They evaluated the small molecule palpocyplib, which inhibits CDK4 and CDK6, and is approved for treatment of breast cancer. In murine cells driven by NUP98 fusions, palpocyplib exerted dose and time-dependent antiproliferative effects, which was characterized by induction of cell cycle arrest as well as myeloid differentiation. In vivo, palpocyplib mediated CDK4-CDK6 inhibition, reduced leukemia burden, and induced a significant increase in apoptosis of transplanted NUP98 JARAD1A-driven leukemia cells compared to vehicle-treated control animals. Similar anti-leukemic activity was found in a patient-derived xenograft model of NUP98 NSD1 rearranged AML. When initiated 80 days after transplantation, palbociplib treatment prolonged survival compared to the vehicle-treated animals. In conclusion, Schmel-Earl and colleagues show that combining advanced modeling of NUP98 fusion-dependent leukemogenesis in mice with integrated transcriptomic analyses provides valuable insight into the molecular circuitries of this AML subtype. These data make a compelling case for CDK6 as a conserved critical target of NUP98 fusion proteins and inhibition of CDK6 as a rational treatment strategy for these patients. Next, we will review a multinational observational study of 232 patients with cold agglutinin disease, or CAD, conducted by Sigbjorn Berenson from the Higgsund Hospital in Norway and international colleagues. CAD is a rare form of hemolytic anemia characterized by chronic hemolysis of varying degrees and hemolytic crises that are triggered by cold temperatures and, in some cases, febrile illness. The underlying pathophysiology is well characterized as a distinct B-cell lymphoproliferative disorder of the bone marrow, leading to the production of clonal cold agglutinins, typically an IgM autoantibody against red blood cell antigens. These antibodies bind to the red cell surface at low temperature, depending on the thermal amplitude, followed by erythrocyte agglutination and activation of the classical complement cascade leading to deposition of C3B on affected erythrocytes and initiation of the terminal complement cascade. C3B-coded erythrocytes are phagocytosed by macrophages of the reticuloendothelial system. Although the last two decades have shown progress in the basic understanding of this rare disease, many clinical questions remain unanswered regarding the epidemiology, clinical, and hematologic features, and patient outcomes. While seasonal variations of hemolysis have been documented in individual cases, no direct evidence has been published supporting the hypothesis that CAD is more prevalent in colder climates. Berenson and colleagues retrospectively studied 232 patients with CAD at 24 centers in five countries, in Norway and in a northern region of Italy. The study was close to being population-based. The data revealed fourfold differences between the cold and warmer climates in regard to prevalence, 20 versus 5 cases per million, and incidence, 1.9 versus 0.48 cases per million per year. The mean age of the 232 patients at diagnosis was 68 years, with a male-to-female ratio of 0.56. The mean follow-up time of this cohort was 8 years after diagnosis. 60% of patients had been diagnosed within one year of clinical onset, 
and 52% of patients had cold-induced circulatory symptoms leading up to the time of diagnosis. The mean baseline hemoglobin level was 9.3 grams per deciliter, but 27% had a hemoglobin less than 8 grams per deciliter. At or before diagnosis, cold-induced ischemic symptoms were present in 52%, 43% had exacerbation of hemolysis during febrile illness, and 38% had been transfused. A monoclonal serum immunoglobulin was found in most patients, with nearly 90% being an IgM kappa. In addition, the median baseline cold agglutinin titer at 4 degrees Celsius was 1 to 512. The authors divided the patients into three clinical phenotypes, hemolytic anemia with grade 1 or absent circulatory symptoms in 69.5%, hemolytic anemia with grade 2 to 3 circulatory symptoms in 21%, and circulatory symptoms with compensated hemolysis in 9.5%. Clinical phenotypes did not show any association with the demonstration of a clonal lymphoproliferative disorder, or LPD, by bone marrow histology or response to B-cell-directed therapies. Identification of typical features of CAD-associated LPD in the bone marrow was greatly increased by centralized biopsy assessment. Notably, the MIDE88L265P mutation was assessed in 16 patients only. This mutation was not detected in any of 14 patients with CAD-associated LPD, but was found in two cases of lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. Five-year survival was estimated at 83%, which is higher than the 61% reported previously. 12.9% experienced a total of 38 thrombotic events, based on age-specific incidences of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, calculated from the general population, the expected number of VTEs during eight years of cohort follow-up would be 8.4, whereas they found 14 events. This was consistent with two prior registry-based studies that showed a slightly increased risk of thrombosis. An increased risk of MI or stroke was not found. The authors felt that these data do not support the routine use of anticoagulant prophylaxis in CAD patients. Historically, treatment of CAD has been challenging, and while treatment is not always indicated, 70 to 80% of patients typically receive some form of therapy. Unlike in warm antibody hemolytic anemia, corticosteroids or other immunosuppressants are not active and generally not recommended. B-cell-directed therapies with rituximab monotherapy or combinations of rituximab with bendamustine have become the standard treatment for symptomatic patients with CAD. Berenson's study focused on long-term outcomes of rituximab plus bendamustine and rituximab plus fludarabine regimens. Rituximab plus bendamustine therapy resulted in response in 35 or 78% of 45 patients and 24 or 53% achieved a complete response. These rates were higher than those observed in a previously reported prospective trial. In responding patients, Median response duration was not reached after 88 months, and the estimated five-year rate of sustained remission was 77%. The regimen appeared safe regarding late-onset malignancies. They found a shift toward deeper responses with time that helps explain the prolonged time to response in many patients, which may be related to long-lived plasma cells. The results with either rituximab plus bendamustine or rituximab plus fludarabine demonstrate high overall and complete response rates and long response duration. The outcomes are more favorable for rituximab bendamustine than for rituximab fludarabine, 
with the first being less toxic as well. However, the long time to treatment response may be a disadvantage of both regimens. In his accompanying commentary, Alexander Roth of the West German Cancer Center in Essen, Germany, cites the encouraging results, but also the need to follow treated patients closely before continuing unnecessary rounds of additional cytotoxic therapy. He also notes that despite treatment-related increases or even normalization of the hemoglobin, patients often continue to hemolyze as demonstrated by elevated bilirubin and reticulocyte counts with ongoing symptoms of fatigue or other complications due to complement activation. With these caveats, Berenson and colleagues' work demonstrates the importance of collecting and analyzing data in patients with rare diseases. A prospective global patient registry for patients with CAD was recently launched in order to advance understanding of its clinical presentation, response to treatment, and natural history. Such registries will help illuminate the comparative benefits and risks of agents such as echolizumab, as well as promising therapies and clinical trials, such as the anti-C1S antibody citimlimab and the pegylated cyclic peptide pegcetacoplin, which is a complement C3 inhibitor. For our final topic today, we will discuss the study, COVID and Coagulation, Bleeding and Thrombotic Manifestations of SARS-CoV-2 Infection, by Hani Al-Samkari and colleagues at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. As COVID-19 continues to spread globally, researchers seek to broaden our understanding of complications and predictors of disease severity across the spectrum, including thrombosis and bleeding risks. While respiratory compromise is the cardinal feature of the disease, early studies from China indicated that elevated levels of circulating D-dimer are associated with increased mortality, suggesting a distinct coagulation disorder associated with the disease. SARS-CoV-2 enters cells by binding to the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor that is expressed on respiratory epithelial cells and other cell types, including endothelial cells. When viral replication is unchecked, a florid host response is induced, characterized by dysregulation of inflammation and coagulation. The hypercoagulability that ensues may result in venous and arterial thrombosis and multi-organ dysfunction. Patients with COVID-19 have elevated D-dimer levels, and early reports describe high VTE and disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, rates. The coagulopathy associated with COVID-19 is characterized by mild thrombocytopenia, slight prolongation of the prothrombin time, high levels of D-dimer, and elevated levels of fibrinogen, factor VIII, and von Willebrand factor. The levels of D-dimer, a breakdown product of cross-linked fibrin, correlate with disease severity and are predictive of thrombosis risk, the need for ventilator support, and mortality. Al-Samkari and colleagues conducted a multicenter retrospective study describing the rates and severity of hemostatic and thrombotic complications in hospitalized COVID-19 patients, receiving standard-dose prophylactic anticoagulation. Coagulation and inflammatory parameters were compared between patients with and without coagulation-associated complications. Multivariable regression examined the utility of these markers in predicting coagulation-associated complications critical illness, and death. 400 patients, including 144 with critical illness, were included in the retrospective analysis. The overall VTE rate was 6% and 10.4% in critically ill patients, 
The overall thrombotic complication rate was 9.5%. Bleeding occurred in 4.8% of patients, and in 7.6% of critically ill patients. 43% of bleeding events were World Health Organization grade 3 or 4. The authors found that an elevated D-dimer greater than 2,500 nanograms per milliliter at initial presentation was predictive of coagulation-associated complications during hospitalization. This included an increased adjusted odds ratio for thrombosis and bleeding of 6.69 and 3.91 respectively. Elevations in C-reactive protein and erythrocyte sedimentation rate at presentation were additionally predictive of thrombotic complications. These markers, as well as elevated PTT, procalcitonin, and high-sensitivity cardiac troponin, at initial presentation were predictive of critical illness during hospitalization. Also, a D-dimer at initial presentation greater than 1,000 nanograms per milliliter was predictive of death in multivariable analysis, with an odds ratio of 2.82. DIC, clinically relevant thrombocytopenia, and reduced fibrinogen were rare, but when present, were associated with major bleeding. The investigators concluded that bleeding and thrombotic complication rates in COVID-19 patients approximated matched historical cohorts with similar severity of illness. Elevated D-dimer levels at initial presentation predicted bleeding and thrombotic complications, critical illness, and death. Beyond D-dimer, thrombosis was primarily associated with inflammatory markers rather than coagulation parameters. As the authors point out, it is unclear whether the underlying cause of the elevated D-dimer levels and bleeding and thrombotic manifestations are due to a pathophysiologically distinct viral coagulopathy or simply related to coagulation system activation in the setting of severe inflammation. Despite these interesting study results, the research has its limitations, including its retrospective design and short follow-up period. In the absence of a uniform protocol to image all patients with suspected VTE, thrombotic events may have been missed or inappropriately diagnosed. Additionally, interpretation of results is complicated since COVID-19 patient hospital and ICU admission criteria vary. Treatments continue to evolve, and differences in comorbidities and care settings influence the rates of thrombosis. Given the observed bleeding rates, Randomized trials are needed to determine any potential benefit of intensified anticoagulant prophylaxis in the COVID-19 patient population, including optimal dose and course of treatment. In their accompanying commentary, Jeremy Weitz of the Thrombosis and Atherosclerosis Research Institute in Canada and Noel Chan of McMaster University note that triggers for COVID-19-associated coagulopathy remain elusive. Additionally, Although intensified anticoagulation regimens may reduce the risk of thrombotic events, the results of the study raise the possibility that they may increase major bleeding rates to unacceptable levels in critically ill patients. Fortunately, randomized trials comparing anticoagulation dosing are underway as the pandemic continues. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.